0: Recorded live.
1: Hello, this is William Fink and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 27, 2013. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening. Tonight we'll present Acts chapter 24. I think it's about the 30th installment in this series. It, it may be more than that. There'll be at least four or five more before it's over. I want to talk a little about, um, well, well, first I want to talk a a little bit about something that Brian and I touched on Friday, and and that's that that the representative so-called pastor from the Jewish quarter of Christian identity has, I believe, showed his true colors when I first began working with this man, I was quite taken aback at his denial that Yahshua Christ is indeed Yahweh come in the flesh. This is the fundamental premise to our Christian faith. This is what we see in Isaiah 9-6 and, and in many of the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Yahweh God, throughout the Old Testament, insisted, besides me, there is no other. I am the first and the last. I am your Redeemer. Joshua Christ insists throughout the New Testament that I and my Father, are one that he who has seen me has seen the Father, that I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the
0: last.
1: That I am the root and the branch of Jesse. The only way that could be possible is for Yahweh our God to be both God and Son. That's the miracle of Christianity, the primary one. To deny that is basically to exhibit a complete, either one of two things, a complete lack of scriptural understanding and discernment or to be a damn Jew. That's what it means to deny that. The dog has returned to his own vomit. When I was working with this man, i he, he became, I, I'm not going to say I did it myself because I know that other people were working on him too. And, and He became um, amenable to the idea and and often agreed with me when I professed it that Yahshua Christ was indeed Yahweh come in the flesh. Now he once again denies that. The dog has returned to his own vomit. Further information is available in the Christiania Forum in the Christian Identity Directions section under a post entitled denying the divinity of Christ I will leave that here my new website next. it's on a subdomain right now it's very close to completion I'm hoping to have it up and running by the time christiania is five years old which is after the first week in January I don't know if I'm going to make it that quick I am confident to say that it will probably become my primary website in January. I will leave the old Christagenia on a subdomain where it won't be – I'll fix it so it won't be accessed by the search engines so that they go to the main site. But I'll leave the old website on a subdomain and active as it is for at least a year – just for people who are more comfortable with the old website. I don't want to alienate people but, and have them force them to learn their way around the new website, but I won't be posting new documents to the old site once it's replaced. And I have to move forward with technology, otherwise I'm going to be open to hacking and, and all kinds of problems. So it's just got to be replaced. A... Um, a good content management system really only has a technical lifespan of two or three years. That's the way it is. So it's... um, Christoginia.org was actually... As we see it, it was actually close to four years old without any major upgrades. And, And I waited so long because... Some of the technology I used when I first made it simply couldn't be upgraded; it was obsolete. So now, now we're moving forward.
0: The Book of Acts, Chapter
1: 24. As we saw last week in Acts Chapter 23, after a plot against Paul's life was revealed to the Roman military tribunal, Tribune Paul is sent under arms and cloak of night to the residence of the Roman procurator in Caesarea, Caesarea Maritima on the coast. That was the provincial capital. Upon his arrival there, the procurator accepted Paul as his prisoner when he declared that he would hear his case. This is in spite of the fact that Paul had not violated any Roman laws. But as the Roman commander had written to the governor, or the procurator, he found the Judeans accusing him concerning inquiries of their law and having not one accusation worthy of death or of bonds. Nevertheless, Paul was arrested in part for his own good because the commander understood the Judeans would kill him The true underlying cause was the hand of Yahweh that Paul would go to Rome and he would go as a prisoner. With this, we will commence with Acts chapter 24. And after five days, the Colex Alexandrinus has some days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some of the elders and a certain orator, Tertullus, who appeared to the governor against Paul, a non-literal translation of that word for orator, would be lawyer. And upon his being called, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, having obtained much peace on account of you, and reforms coming to this nation by your foresight in every way and in every place we approve noble Felix with all gratitude now rather than reforms the majority text has accomplishments or worthy deeds in the King James Version Felix is mentioned quite frequently by Josephus. Um, Two two chapters which stand out, of course, or two books, are are Antiquities, Book 20 and Wars, Book 2. He is also mentioned by the Roman historian Tacitus in his Annals of Imperial, Imperial Rome in Book 12. He was the Roman curator of Judea from 52 A.D. until 59 A.D. So the date here may be determined from Luke's statement in Acts chapter 24, verse 27, to be about 57 A.D. As we explained briefly in our Acts chapter 23 presentation, I'm sorry, I got something in my throat. Felix, or by his full name, Marcus Antonius Felix, held this office until he was recalled to Rome before the end of his last term over a dispute between the Judeans and the Syrians of Caesarea, whom Josephus sometimes refers to as Greeks. After that dispute, Felix was accused of certain injustices. We will discuss them at much greater length later on this evening. The Roman historian, Tacitus, discusses the brother of Felix,
0: whose name was Marcus Antonius Pallas. Tacitus records certain proposals in the Roman Senate in the
1: time of Claudius Caesar, made circa 52 AD, and attributes to Publius Scipio, and, and he's from a famous Roman family, the remark that Pallas should be given the nation's thanks because though descended from Arcadian kings, He preferred the national interests, meaning those of Rome, to his own antique lineage, and let himself be regarded as one of the emperor's servants. So we see that Felix was indeed of noble lineage. However, he was evidently not a very noble man. After a short discussion of palace, Tacitus goes on to say that Pallas' brother, the knight, calling him a knight means he was of the equestrian class of Roman nobles, Pallas' brother, the knight, Antonius Felix, who was the governor of Judea, showed less moderation. Bad by vast influence, which is a reference to his brother Pallas, he believed himself free to commit any crime. That's from the Annals of Imperial Rome, book 12, paragraph 53. Josephus had said that Jerusalem was filled with all sorts of impiety on account of the deeds of Felix in Antiquities Book 20, where, among other things, one particular crime stands out, where he describes Felix's successful plot to have a band of robbers enter the city surreptitiously and murder a high priest named Jonathan, whom Felix had been at odds with. However, after the deed was completed, The robbers then immediately went on a rampage throughout the city, murdering many other people, and Felix had to then resort to Roman arms to put down the ensuing disturbances. That's in Antiquities Book 20, Chapter 8. Where Tertullus states that Felix brought much peace and reform to Judea, He is merely being a sycophant and a flatterer. The truth was actually quite the opposite. Luke only vaguely reveals the true nature of Felix in Acts chapter 24, verse 26, where he informs us that Felix is corrupt in being open to bribery. Most of the accounts in the book of Acts may be, Highly abbreviated, but they are absolutely historical. Continuing with the next part of Tertullus' discourse, verse 4, but in order that I do not hinder you further, I exhort you in your fairness to hear us briefly. For this man, meaning Paul, of course, for this man is sound the past, and stirring up a sedition among all the Judeans throughout the inhabited world, and the leader of the sect of the Missourians. I'm going to discuss that word at length. First, this Greek word loimus, which appears in the New Testament only here and in Luke 21.11. Here I have rendered it a past, Literally, it is a plague. These words of the orator brought by the Judeans, where Paul is called a leader of the sect of the Nazorians, this is nearly the same Greek word which appears in Josephus' account of Herod Agrippa I, where some years earlier, as Whiston translates it, he had ordained that many of the Nazarites should have their heads shorn. Antiquities, Book 19, Chapter 6. There are two different Greek words, which are both said by Strong and his dictionary to mean of Nazareth. They are Nazarenus, Strong's number 3479, which is always Nazarene in the Christogenean New Testament, and Nazorahius, Strong's number 3480, which is always Nazorian. While the two Greek forms of the word indeed have the same meaning, the distinction between them was purposely maintained in the Christogenean translation. The King James Version often translates either word as of Nazareth. And Nazarenus may be the more proper of the two forms relaying that meaning. Thayer does not put of Nazareth in his definition for Nazorius. However, according to Moulton Geddon, in their concordance to the Greek Testament, while some manuscripts may differ, Nazarenus is found only in Mark and in the Gospel of Luke, while Nazarachius is found in Matthew, Luke, John, and Acts, and as they are used throughout the New Testament, the two forms are clearly synonyms. Uh, It seems like I'm, uh, I'm expounding too much on these two words, but I've seen certain identity Christians try to make too much of the difference between the forms and and try to assert that they mean different things or or, or that they relate back to the Nazarites of the Old Testament. And and they certainly don't. They're just two different ways of stating that somebody is from Nazareth in Greek. In the manuscripts of Josephus, we find a third form where the word is evidently spelled Nazir. Rahias. It's just like Nazor Rahias but with an I instead of a long O as the fourth letter.
0: It is this form which is used
1: in the Septuagint of the Old Testament Nazarites. The special priesthood ordained by Yahweh in Numbers chapter 6. However, in the Greek of the Septuagint it only appears in the book of Judges one Maccabees, and in Lamentations, the short prayer by Jeremiah. In Numbers chapter 6, and elsewhere in the Septuagint, the translators rendered the original Hebrew term literally as he who is vowed, or he who, who is taking a vow, or even as consecrated one, or, or something similar. Indicating one who has taken a vow of separation. Here it is evident that the sect of Christians was called Nazorians by the Judeans of the first century, as Josephus also referred to them in that one place where he described the acts of Herodotus I which can only be a reference to Christians in Judea. This usage does not refer to the Old Testament term Nazarites. As the followers of Christ, when you actually go back and read Numbers chapter 6, and you actually read the Gospels and the accounts and the things which the apostles did, the apostles had very little or nothing to do with the vows taken by the Nazarites as ordained by God in Numbers chapter 6. Rather, Christians were called Nazarenes or Nazorians because they were followers of Yahshua the Nazorian, or as the King James Version would read, Jesus of Nazareth. In our Acts chapter 2 presentation,
0: we explained
1: how Yahshua's being called after the name for the town of Nazareth. A Hebrew word derived from a word meaning branch helped fulfill prophecies in Isaiah and in Zechariah that he would indeed be called the branch, my servant, the branch. Regardless of this, and some may think it rather surprising, Luke does record Herod Agrippa II as having used the term for Christians in Acts chapter 26 because the Judeans normally would not use the term. The first century Judeans had apparently shunned the words for Christ and for Christian. Because if they had used those terms, then by that very use, they would have been admitting that Yahshua was indeed the anointed one, the expected Hebrew Messiah. As the Greek word for Christ is the equivalent of the meaning of the Hebrew word for Messiah. So religious conscious Jews wouldn't use the term Christ or Christian in reference to Jesus of Nazareth or his followers. Now it does appear in Josephus in book 18 of his Antiquities where he mentions the sect of Christians and also in Book 15 of Tacitus' Annals of Rome, where he relates that Christians were punished by Nero. So from those two instances, it is clear that others besides the apostles were indeed referring to the followers of Yahshua of Nazareth as Christians. Even if the Judeans who rejected the Messiah, would not use that term. Now, an ex- what we see in Luke, that Herod Agrippa did use the term, but an examination of the character of Herod Agrippa II would reveal that he himself did not take the Judean religion seriously. And he was certainly, by no means, a candidate for Christianity. There's absolutely no doubt of that. As an aside, you know, we take this name Christian because it's a matter of the fulfillment of prophecy. We're told in the book of Acts that in Antioch the disciples of Christ had first called themselves Christians. We see in the epistle of Peter the admonition that if you suffer as a Christian, then you'll, you, you are blessed. I, I'm paraphrasing, but basically that's what it says. There are certain people, I could only call them former identity Christians, who now claim to be anointed in a different way, and they have taken to rejecting the term Christian. Some of them have talk show programs and websites pronouncing that they have truth from God. I don't know what God they think they have truth from, but it certainly is not the God of the Bible. It certainly is not Yahweh, the God of Israel. They are evidently making themselves God and denying the name of He who is bought us, denying. The fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies in Christ, they really need to read Acts chapter 14 once again, because men should not seek to be considered God. Once again, continuing with the last part of Tertullus' discourse from verse 6, who also, of course, referring to Paul, who also attempted to profane the temple and whom we took hold of. Now, if you're following along in the King James Version, I have a surprise for you. Let's jump to the middle of verse 8. From whom you yourself should be able, examining him concerning all these things, to discover that which we accuse him of. And the Judea, also joined in alleging these things to be so. Here, there is an interpolation which appears in the King James Version. The Codex Laudianus, which is a 5th century manuscript, along with some, but not all, of the manuscripts which represent the majority text, had the following lengthy. And lengthy edition inserted at the end of verse 6, which appears in the King James Version as the end of a longer verse 6, as all of verse 7, and as the beginning of a longer verse 8. And I'll read my translation of it. It doesn't appear in the Christianity Testament because it doesn't belong in the Scripture. It may be read... From where the Christian New Testament ends, verse 6, with the words, and whom we took hold of, it may be read. And according to our law, we desire to judge him. But Lucius, the commander, arriving with much force, had taken him from our hands, ordering his accusers to come to
0: you. And then we could continue with what we have in verse 8 here. The reading found in the Christian and New Testament, which excludes that, that that interpolation,
1: agrees with the text of the Codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and other later manuscripts and papyri, as well as another portion of those manuscripts, which represent what we consider to be the majority text. The majority text is divided on this interpolation. Now. now I understand that this interpolation really doesn't affect any of our doctrine. A lot of interpolations do. There's a long interpolation in one, in one John chapter five, verses seven and eight, the end of Mark 16, the, the, the beginning the opening 12 verses or, or 11 verses of John chapter eight.
0: We shouldn't admit, we should be able to see where the majority
1: text has failed us and correct it from the old manuscripts. There are so many people who are King James-only people or Textus Receptus-only people, and, and Textus Receptus is not a synonym
0: for majority text, so... Those people are just kidding themselves. Now this particular interpolation is quite old because the Codex
1: Lavianus is a 5th century AD manuscript. There are other older manuscripts such as the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and several other comparably aged manuscripts such as the Alexandrinus that don't have the interpolation. That's how we know it's an interpolation. That Paul attempted to profane the temple was an accusation which was never established. As we had explained several times in this presentation of Acts, inscriptions placed around the temple of Judea warned in Greek that any Non-Judean, and and ostensibly that refers to Judeans in a religious sense, because there were plenty of converts, as we've seen, even in the Gospels. So so non-Judean means those who were uncircumcised. Any non-Judean who was caught entering into the temple was liable to death. In Acts chapter 21... Luke makes a parenthetical remark where at verse twenty nine he wrote, For they had seen before with him, meaning with Paul, in the city, Trophimus, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. In our presentation of Acts chapter twenty one, we established that it was quite unlikely that Paul had been seen in the temple in or the city with Trophimus on this journey to Jerusalem. And in fact, while Trophimus was among those who departed from the Troad with Paul, Paul explains in 2 Timothy 4.20 that he had left Trophimus behind in Ephesus since he was sick, and therefore Trophimus could not have accompanied Paul to Jerusalem on this journey. It was much more likely That the men who knew Paul from Asia, certainly referring to Ephesus, where Paul had just recently spent three years, had seen Paul in Jerusalem with Trophimus on an earlier occasion, a trip which was probably, well, which was unrecorded in Acts. It was probably made and unrecorded in Acts. It seems certain that Judeans commonly made the trip from Ephesus to Jerusalem at the times of the feasts, That's how come we have men from Asia who were there to accuse Paul here. This is the day of Pentecost, or at least close to it. And therefore, Trophimus may have accompanied Paul to the city at an earlier feast. The fact is that if Trophimus were caught in the temple with Paul on this trip, he would have been arrested and tried. The Judeans would have had firm proof of Paul's having defiled the temple, these closing chapters of Acts may have read quite differently and Paul's comments 2 Timothy 4.20 would not exist. It is evident in later statements made by Luke and Paul that both Timothy and Aristarchus, Aristarchus who was called the Macedonian, were at some point arrested and imprisoned along with Paul. However, the exact circumstances of their arrests are not known. Timothy, however, was circumcised. He couldn't defile the temple. And the record concerning Aristarchus is unclear in that regard. However, if Aristarchus was uncircumcised and was Paul in the temple, we would not see either a reference to Trothymus in Acts 21:29 or the word attempted here in Acts twenty-four six. Once again, these chapters of Acts would have to have what would have had to reflect a very different account. I pray that I'm not belaboring the details, but they are all necessary to understand in order to silence the critics. Even most identity Christians do not thoroughly understand their Bibles if only we did not have to spend so much time being interrupted with infiltrators. Verse 10, and Paul responded, the governor
0: indicating
1: for him to speak. And this is Paul's response. Knowing of your being judge for this nation many years, cheerfully do I answer the things concerning myself. Now those many years are five years by this point, possibly as many as possibly going on six. The Codex Laudianus has Paul calling him a righteous judge. Somehow, I don't think that's the case. The text follows the Codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Vaticanus. Later Greek manuscripts are divided. The King James does not. I think. I don't think
0: it has the word righteous here. Right, it does not. Unlike the oration of Tertullus on behalf of the Judeans, Paul does
1: not flatter Felix, but rather he only opens his defense by stating a matter of fact, even if it seems flattering, it is not, it is only a matter of fact. Furthermore, Luke's record reflects that Paul's eloquence of speech is by no means inferior to the lawyer that the Judeans had brought along, to Tertullus, verse 11, of which you are able to discover, since there are not more than 12 days with me, from which I went up into Jerusalem for worshiping. And from this statement, we know how long since his arrival that Paul had been in Jerusalem. It is evident from many places in the New Testament, and especially in Luke, that days were always counted inclusively. The time may be counted from when Paul first entered the city, Acts chapter 21, verse 17. And he went to see James on the following day, Acts 21, 18. Paul began the purification ritual the day after that, Acts 21, 26, which would have been the first day of a seven-day ritual. (coughs) Then Paul was arrested when the seven days were almost ended, as we read in Acts 21, verse 27. if almost, and, and this is conjecture, if almost meant five days.
0: Allowing
1: that estimate as a conjecture, then Paul was arrested on the seventh day of his time in Jerusalem. Add another day, for his appearance before the council in Acts 22, verse 30. And yet one more day in the Roman fortress in Jerusalem, which we read about in Acts chapter 23, verses 11 and 12. And that night, at the end of his ninth day in Jerusalem, Paul departed for his trip to Caesarea, a 75-mile trip, which began the
0: night of the 10th day and took at least two full days to complete. In that manner, Paul said, it was not more
1: than 12 days since he arrived in Jerusalem. That also helps to establish our assertions concerning Trophimus which we made while presenting Acts chapter 21 that the men from Asia had not time nor occasion to see Paul with Trophimus in Jerusalem on this trip. So it may have been some earlier trip which Luke referred to which was not recorded in Acts. Another possibility not yet raised here is that they may have only imagined Trophimus to have been with Paul here in Jerusalem in the first place Knowing him from Asia, and therefore simply they simply invented the accusation in that respect as well. Now, I say all this in order to defend the authority of 2 Timothy 4.20, because a lot of people would take the lazy route and just want to say that to Timothy four twenty it is an interpolation, or, or perhaps luke twenty one twenty nine and and the parenthetical statement there is an interpolation but when, when you want to hold the scripture up and, and say that it 's been added to, you really have to have evidence from the manuscripts. If you don't,
0: then you'd better leave it alone. All of these things can indeed be reconciled without eliminating any one of them. Verse 12. And neither finding me in the temple, arguing with anyone, or making
1: a gathering of a crowd, not in the assembly halls, nor throughout the city, neither are they able to prove to you the things which they now accuse me of. And that word gathering is literally a halting, being epistasis. The majority text has epistasis, which is a gathering against or a riotous meeting. And the King James Version, therefore, has a raising up, verse 14. But I profess this to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, thusly I serve the God of the fathers,
0: believing
1: in all things throughout the law, and which are written in the prophets. Now this Selix, having a wife, and, and we're going to become intimately knowledgeable of her soon, having a wife who was an Edomite Jewess of the family of Herod and having been procurator of Judea for at least five years by this time must have already been at least somewhat familiar with the religious arguments amongst the
0: Judeans.
1: accusers considered Christianity to be a sect, or a heresy. The Greek word is hierasis. it's actually the word that we borrowed to get the word heresy in English. However, Paul insists that Christianity is the way, literally the road, or the path, which is according to the Hebrew prophets, the law of Moses and the patriarchs. Now, of course, the tares could never understand as much, and the gospel was indeed supposed to divide the wheat from the tares. Today, it doesn't divide. It unites the wheat and the tares, because Christians themselves have gone out of the way, and the word of God is obfuscated by his enemies. Ignatius of Antioch, a man born circa 35 A.D., was, by tradition, said to be the third bishop of Antioch after Peter and Euodius. Now, I don't know how Peter could be the first bishop of Rome and the first bishop of Antioch. That's a little difficult. I'm just poking fun at some of the traditions. Peter certainly was not the first bishop of Rome. Ignatius of Antioch was the third bishop of Antioch after Peter and a man named Euodius. According to the 4th century Christian writer Eusebius, and Eusebius himself was also a bishop in Caesarea, the very town where this trial is taking place here in Acts. The tradition probably oversimplifies the facts, but Ignatius was nevertheless a very early Christian leader. Other early traditions
0: state that he was a disciple
1: of the Apostle John. Several of his epistles survive. In his Epistle to the Magnesians, Ignatius
0: wrote that it
1: is absurd to profess Christ Jesus and to Judaize for Christianity did not embrace Judaism but Judaism Christianity so that every tongue which believes might be gathered to God Judaism is clearly a corruption of the law, the prophets, and the way, the way of the patriarchs. Judaism is a corruption of pre-Christ Christianity and its evils cannot be sufficient, sufficiently denounced. Ignatius and at least some other early Christians fully understood that Jews today are attempting fully understood that, I'm sorry, that they understood that Judaism was a corruption of Christianity, Jews today are attempting to convince Christians once again that Christianity is only a sect of Judaism. And once again, the sheep are being eaten by the wolves. Judaism is a corruption of Christianity It is Judaism, which is a sect, Ignatius knew it, many early Christians knew it, and they treated it that way. They are the ones who have strayed from the path, or in reality, were never on it in the first place. Verse 15, having hope in God, which also they themselves expect, that there is going to be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul again, and and they didn't all expect it, but Paul is again picking the issue which would divide the Pharisees and the Sadducees. At the end of verse 15, after the word for resurrection, The Codex of Alianus and the majority text interpolate the phrase of the dead. This, of course, leads to the question, who is resurrected? I'm always hearing this argued in Identity Christianity. It's a disgrace that this is argued amongst Identity Christians. It's an absolute disgrace. Are non-Adamic peoples resurrected? Of course not. First, Isaiah chapter 45:25, And we'll start this at what, where we should by, by, by distinguishing the just and the unjust. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 25, states that in Yahweh, all the seed of Israel, every one of Jacob's descendants, shall be justified and shall glory. Therefore, Paul of of Tarsus states that all Israel shall be saved. Yet we see in Daniel chapter 12 in verses 1 and 2, in part, that at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting content. Likewise, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter three, if the work of anyone who is built, meaning on the foundation of Christ, if the work of anyone who is built remains, he will receive a reward. If the work of anyone burns completely, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be preserved, although consequently through fire, through trials. Yet all of Israel is justified, and therefore all of Israel must be included in the resurrection of the just. In several places in the gospel, Christ mentions the resurrection of the just, but does not mention the unjust in that context. It may be immaterial. The words of Christ from John chapter five, from verse 26, for as the father has life in himself, so has he given to the son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good, unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil, unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, some may take this to mean that the children of Israel could be damned. Yet, Christ said in Matthew chapter 7 and in Luke chapter 6, that even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth good fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth evil fruit. I'm sorry, good fruit. Likewise, Paul said in Romans chapter 4, quoting the 32nd Psalm, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom Yahweh will not impute sin if all of the seed of Israel are
0: justified and shall glory then sin will not be imputed to all the seed of Israel That's
1: the word of God. Now, I have a correction to make. That word damnation in John chapter 5, that's simply a word that means judgment. It doesn't mean condemnation. There's a big difference. I probably should not have
0: quoted the King James Version in that respect. The children of Yahweh God, knowing that their sins are forgiven
1: and that they indeed have eternal life, should all the more want to be obedient to the word of Yahweh their God. Knowing that life is eternal, one does not want to be found without a reward, which would indeed lead to everlasting contempt the everlasting contempt, which we see in Daniel chapter 12. Our brethren shall not be judged with the judgment of men, but with the judgment of God. And God, Yahweh God, he's already made his mind up, and we'll see that momentarily in Romans chapter 5.
0: The reasoning of men are lies. The judgment of God is all-knowing. Our purpose here transcends this life. The people who want to condemn
1: their brethren, all of the value they put on life is here in the immediate physical world. They are Sadducees in a very strong way. Paul explains this blanket forgiveness of sin in a different manner in Romans chapter 5, where he says, paraphrasing the Christogenean New Testament, because the word sin will be employed here in order to simplify the illustration from verse 12. For this reason, just as by one man sin entered into the society, and by that sin death, and in that manner death has passed to all men on account that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the society, but sin was not accounted, there not being law. But death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned resembling the transgression of Adam, who is an image of the future, but should not, as was the transgression, in that manner also be the favor. Indeed, if in the transgression of one, many die, much greater is the favor of Yahweh and the gift in favor, which is of the one man, Yahshua Christ, in which many have great advantage. And not then, by one having sinned is the gift. Indeed, the fact is, the judgment of a single one is for condemnation, but the favor is from many transgressions into a judgment of acquittal. For if in the transgression of one, death has taken reign through that one, much more is the advantage of the favor and the gift of justice that they are receiving. We were not subject to death on account of ourselves. In life, they will reign through the one, Yahshua Christ. So then, as that one transgression, Adam's, is for all men for a sentence of condemnation the death that all men must face in this manner
0: then through one decision of judgment for all men is a judgment for life Yahweh himself
1: dies as a man to undo the transgression of Adam. There are multiple facets to the
0: passion of the Christ. He undoes the transgression of Adam to reconcile himself to the entire Adamic race. Christ further tells us, as Paul agrees in that passage of Romans chapter 5,
1: that other Adamic people shall be in the resurrection as well. And they shall join in the condemnation of the wicked, where he says, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 11, from verse 31, the queen of the south, shall arise in the judgment with the men of this race and shall condemn them. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of the Ninevites shall be resurrected in the judgment with this race and shall condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Not only is all of Israel saved, but the other branches of the Adamic race are also preserved in that judgment. In this manner, Paul said again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The promises to Israel are important, however, because nearly, if not all, true Adamic people who have survived to these last days are of the children of Israel, which is evident in Scripture and in history. The other Genesis 10 nations have all either been overrun with aliens or commingled with the tribes of Israel in fulfillment of other prophecies. However, Paul spoke in Hebrews chapter 6 of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment.
0: The reward which we seek
1: or our
0: lack
1: of a reward
0: is certainly
1: that eternal judgment. And we, being Christians, having the instruction of Christ, should live our lives in consideration of that, seeking to do good. We have these promises which transcend the purpose of our race in the immediate here and now. There's a greater story and a a greater mystery to creation. As in Adam all died, in Christ all shall be made alive because they have a greater purpose. Because there was a rebellion from God before Adam was created. God's fight, Yahweh's fight, is with his enemies. We're here to learn a lesson. We're here to learn a lot of serious lessons. But the real purpose of our being here transcends this life. And people who want to destroy their brethren, if indeed those people are Israelites
0: in the first place, They don't understand that purpose. As for the wicked, among whom must be those
1: people who Yahshua Christ describes the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south as arising in the resurrection and condemning as they are presented in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11, Christ uttered those words in connection with that race of people who are responsible for the blood of all the prophets. From the blood of Abel, under the blood of Zacharias. And the children of Adam cannot be held responsible for the blood of Abel. There is no way. Only the children of Cain to be held responsible for the blood of Abel.
0: We are told by
1: the Apostle Luke that the messengers, not having kept their first dominion, but having forsaken their own habitation, are kept under darkness in everlasting bindings for the judgment of the great day. Peter corroborates this where he says it is 2nd epistle, chapter (laughs) 2, Yahweh did not spare the messengers who had done wrong, but having cast them into Tartarus, into a pit of darkness, or depending on which manuscripts you want to follow, into chains of darkness, he had delivered them being kept for judgment. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we see these words from verse 18. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just, meaning that only Christ is just, for the unjust, meaning that all men are unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached under the spirits in prison. And Peter's reference It's to the spirits of those Adamic people who died in the flood of Noah, who are at least as evil as any Adamic people of today. Yet Christ smashed the gates of hell and released the spirits in prison because they accepted the gospel. Along these same lines, Paul said elsewhere in Romans chapter 5, that indeed, when we were feeble, Christ at the appointed time died for the impious. Though scarcely for the benefit of the upright will one die, for the benefit of the noble perhaps one then dares to die. But Yahweh introduces his own love to us, because we, yet being wrongdoers, Christ had died for our benefit. Still more, then, being deemed worthy now by his blood, will we be preserved by him from wrath. Therefore, if we, being odious, were reconciled, and even the King James Version translates that word, reconciled in that passage, reconciled to Yahweh through the death of his son, still more, being reconciled, will we be preserved in his life. Therefore, by the reference to the judgment of the unjust, Paul seems to have referred to the judgment of a Adamic man, Israelite and non-Israelite, who led impious lives in their alienation from God before the reconciliation which is in Christ. Paul says in Timothy that some men send their sins ahead to the judgment and others follow after. We have men who accept Christ who are repentant in this life and they're the man that Christ calls the righteous in Romans, and I'm sorry, in John chapter 5. We have men They're they're the people that receive the resurrection of life. And we have men that take their sins with them to the judgment, and they awaken
0: to the resurrection of judgment. That's the way I read that passage. The angels who left their first estate
1: are also awaiting judgment but they're not necessarily awaiting resurrection. If we understand the references to chains of darkness as a metaphor for the race-mixed bodies of the races which they themselves made for themselves, in their fall, having mixed their seed with the seed of beasts, the only judgment they await is the lake of fire. Evidently, that includes that race of men who rejected Christ in Judea, from whom today's Jews are descended. It also includes the Arabs and and many of the other, well, well, all of the other mixed races in the world. Christ Joshua tells us in Luke chapter 11 and in John chapter 8 that they did not originate with him. And that Cain was
0: their father, who was a murderer from the beginning, and that their father
1: was not his father. If their father was not his father, then that Cain, that murderer from the beginning, could not have been a son of Adam by any means. Otherwise, Joshua Christ is lying when he says that their father is not his father, because Christ descended from Adam, and Adam is the son of God. John chapter 8 and Luke chapter 11, without a doubt, prove that Cain was not the son of Adam. And he's the only one that could be
0: a murderer from the beginning. These are those, collectively, these people,
1: are those the Apostle John in his first epistle tells us are born of the world and not of God. They are all destined for the lake of fire because they are plants which Yahweh did not plant, being born
0: of the world.
1: In rebellion from God.
0: All of the Adamic race shall
1: be resurrected and shall have eternal life. But many shall have no reward, whom Daniel says shall awaken to shame and everlasting contempt.
0: That does not mean, however,
1: that any resurrected Adamic souls shall face eternal suffering in fire and brimstone. That's an image which is a Roman Catholic deception. The Pharisees, as Flavius Josephus describes, the Pharisees had it before them. The lake of fire is not for the Adamic race, it's for the
0: devil and his
1: angels. as Christ himself tells us. These prophecies of the resurrection are not to be confused with all of the eschatological statements concerning the Israelite nations and the non-Adamic races. They are not to be confused with that. There are different things going on here. There's a resurrection of, of the just and the unjust for the
0: Adamic race.
1: and there's the judgment of the goat nations, the fallen angels, the beasts, and, and, and all of these entities, the, the, the bad fish, the tares,
0: and that's a separate issue. The judgment of this world is at the wedding feast of the Lamb, described in
1: Revelation chapter 19, which is the gathering of the sheep and the goat nations, found in Matthew chapter 25, which is the
0: gathering
1: under Satan, the international Jew, of all the nations which come against the children of Israel, in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. This is also commensurate with the parable of the wheat and the tares found in Matthew chapter 13, the prophecy concerning the nations to which Israel was scattered found in Jeremiah chapter 30 and Jeremiah chapter 46 and also in Obadiah verses 15 and 16 where Yahweh says, said in Obadiah that all of the heathens shall be as though they had never been. That may be, certainly may be equated to the fate of the goat nations. In Matthew chapter 25. From Obadiah, For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done, meaning as they today, right now, are feeding like parasites off of the society which the children of Israel have have created, or which Yahweh has created through them. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head, for as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, My holy mountain, God's holy mountain, is the children of Israel. So shall all the heathen drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink and they shall swallow down. That drink is the cup of Yahweh's wrath. And they shall be as though they had not This is the destruction of all those nations who have gathered against the children of Israel at the last days. Who are gathered against the children of Israel by Satan, the Edomite Jew, as described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 and in Revelation chapter 20, which now Includes virtually all, if not all, of the world's non-adamic peoples. If they are the flood which the serpent cast out of his mouth, as they are described in Revelation chapter 12, then their origin is with the serpent, the fallen angels the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's who created the non-Adamic races. That's their origin. Yahweh, God, did not create them. His permissive will allows them to be created and to exist. But he did not create them, and therefore they cannot survive his judgment. Yahweh permits us to sin then he uses that sin to teach us a lesson if at Yahweh's day of vengeance the heathen nations shall be as though they had not been that leaves little room to imagine that not having the spirit of God which was bestowed upon the Adamic race they could possibly be resurrected. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that resurrection is for the race of Adam. And that resurrection is possible through the spirit of Yahweh which is bestowed upon the race of Adam. Therefore, Yahweh states in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, for I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations, where I have scattered thee. Yet I will not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. If you don't get it, read in Jeremiah thirty eleven. He says nearly, nearly the exact same thing in Jeremiah chapter 46. In the end, the goat nations, the tares, the devil, all of the fallen angels and all of their earthly descendants are indeed devils. The beast, the false prophet, hell, and death all go into the lake of fire. Now, the beast and the false prophet and hell and death, you can't clean them up. This is not, as so many fools presume, this is not a cleansing fire. You can't clean up hell and death and the beast and the false prophet. That idea is absurd. The only thing this fire cleanses is... It cleanses from Yahweh's creation all of the bastards, all of the sinful results of the fall of man. While Yahweh preserves only those whom He had created, who are written into the book of life. That book of life isn't some magic book in heaven, it's sitting right in front of your faces. It's called the Holy Bible. Christ is the word of life. The
0: gospel must be the book of life. The spirits of those of the Adamic race who were created by Yahweh God shall indeed survive with
1: or without a reward for their works. As the Apostle John says in his first epistle, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he
0: cannot
1: sin because he is born of God. If your seed remains in you, you are of his kind after kind creation. You shall indeed be restored to the position of your first father before his fall. You shall indeed have an eternal life. Let none of Yahweh's enemies deceive you otherwise. That's the Christian hope. Without that, Christian Israel has no hope. I'm sorry about the long digression. With that, we will
0: proceed
1: with verse 16. Continuing Paul's defense. And in this, do I exercise myself? Exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense before Yahweh and men continually as the apostle peter explains in his first epistle that it is not a putting away of the filth of the flesh but a demand of a good conscience for Yahweh Through the resurrection of Yahshua christ 1 peter 3:21 this is the true christian baptism immersing ourselves in the death of Christ as Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that's the one baptism which Paul describes immersing ourselves in the death of Christ we understanding why he died for us are cleansed in his word upon accepting it verse 17 And after many years, I came making acts of charity and offerings to my nation. Now, a lot of people might wonder about that after many years. He had not come to Jerusalem making acts of charity and offerings for many years. He had done that, as it is recorded, at the end of Acts chapter 13 with Barnabas when he had a collection for the saints, the poor of the saints at Jerusalem. And here Paul reflects upon the reason why he came to Jerusalem, as he had written beforehand in the second epistle to the Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9, which was written a year before this time, as he was about to spend three months in Greece, in Akahia. And also in Romans chapter 15, which was written only a few months before this time, as he carried into Troad before stopping in Miletus on his way to Jerusalem. Everything. Well, once you understand when Paul wrote his epistles, this is an entirely cohesive story. Verse 18, the end of Paul's defense. Among which they found me being purified in the temple, not with the crowd nor with the tumult, but certain Judeans from Asia, whom it had been necessary to have presence before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me or they themselves must speak of any unrighteousness they found upon my standing before the council, whether concerning this one utterance which I cried out standing among them, that concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am judged by you today. The Judeans never brought any witnesses against Paul, but only an orator, a lawyer. They also expected Paul to convict himself if he testified, where Tutulus said, from whom you yourself, speaking to Felix, should be able, examining him concerning all these things, to discover that which we accuse him of. It was all bravado and no substance. However, Paul did not convict himself And after his defense, even the corrupt Felix could not support the cause of the Judeans. At the close of Paul's apology, he once again used the wedge of a hope in the resurrection to cause agitation among the Judeans. Verse 22. The majority text has, and hearing these things, those words don't exist anywhere else. And Felix adjourned them, knowing more precisely the things concerning the way. He said, when Lucius, the commander, comes down, I shall decide the things against you, appointing the centurion to keep him and to have license and not to forbid anyone of his acquaintances to assist him. Lucius, the commander, is, of course, the Roman military tribune who had sent Paul to Caesarea, to Felix, in the first place. Felix is evidently stalling for time, since he never made any such decision. In verse 23, the phrase of his acquaintances is literally any one of those of his own. It's an idiom which Liddell and Scott explained in their their lexicon at the word idios. The majority text has at the end of the verse to read to assist or to come to him. Verse 24, and after some days, Felix, Arriving with his wife, Drusilla, who is a Judean, sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ Joshua. And some manuscripts want Joshua.
0: Felix, or perhaps his wife, Drusilla,
1: seemed to be curious here. And this is not describing any official business they had sent to Paul personally in order to hear him. Here it may be enlightening to discuss the background of this Drusilla, who she was, and how she came to be the wife of a nobleman of the Roman equestrian rank, who himself was descended from Greek kings we'll see that most nobles aren't any as good as any better than the rest of us I'm going to quote from Josephus's Antiquities first with some background on Drusilla and then the, um, the story of Drusilla and Felix Antiquities book 18 and I quote Agrippa meaning Herod Agrippa I, the Herod whose death is recorded in Acts, chapter 12. Agrippa had by Cyprus two sons and three daughters, which daughters were named Bernice. Now, we shall see Bernice a little later in Acts. She lived in an incestuous relationship with her brother, Herod Agrippa II, and we shall see her in his company, in Acts chapter 25. Berice was the first daughter, the second daughter Maryam, and the third Drusilla. Drusilla who is the wife of Felix here was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. But the names of the sons were Agrippa, meaning Herod Agrippa II, who we shall see in Acts chapter 25, and Drusus of which Drusus died before he came to the years of puberty. But their father, Agrippa, meaning Herod Agrippa I, was brought up with his other brothers, Herod, that's a reference to Herod Antipas, and Aristobulus, for these were also the sons of the son of Herod the Great by Bernice a different Bernice, but Bernice was the daughter of Costobaris and of Salome, who was Herod's sister. Here we see just a glimpse of the confused and inbred line of the family of Herod the Edomite. It's confusing because they used certain names, Herod, Agrippa, Aristobulus, Bernice, Salome, they use those names over and over again from generation to generation. It makes them really hard to track through the history
0: of Josephus. Uncle-niece marriages and first-cousin
1: marriages are very common in this family of Herod's And that's why it's inbred. These types of marriages occur from generation to generation. From Josephus' Antiquities, book 19, so we learn that Drusilla is the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. Book 19 from line 354. And thus did King Agrippa, meaning Agrippa I, depart this life, But he left behind him a son, Agrippa by name, a youth in the 17th year of his age. So in 44 AD, Herod Agrippa II, who we will meet in Acts chapter 25, was 17 years old. This is 57 AD, so he would be 30 years old. and three daughters, one of which, Bernice, was married to Herod, her father's brother. That was Herod Antipas, and was 16 years old. The other two, Mariam and Drusilla, were still virgins, meaning they were still virgins when their father died in 44 AD. The former was 10 years old, and Drusilla was six. So therefore, according to Josephus Antiquities Book 19, Drusilla was six years old in 44 AD, the year that her father, Herod Agrippa I, had died, as we see in Acts Chapter 12, where it says that he was died being eaten by worms. Therefore, Drusilla here in Acts chapter 24 is only 19 years old in 57 AD. Now, her husband, Felix, the Roman procurator, he is generally estimated to have been born no later than 10 AD. Therefore, he was apparently at least 28 years older than Drusilla, his wife, here in 57 AD.
0: From Josephus, Antiquities, book 20. From line 139. And when
1: Agrippa, meaning Herod Agrippa II, had received these countries as the gift of Caesar, now that's a reference to the dominions of his dead uncle, which he was made king over when his uncle died. He gave his sister Drusilla, this Drusilla of Acts 24:24 here, in marriage to Azizus, king of Amessa, upon his consent to be circumcised. For Epiphanes, the son of King Antiochus, most of these men are Greeks, had refused to marry her because after he had promised her father formerly to come over to the Judean religion, he would now not perform that promise. Now, Emesa was a Syrian city north of Damascus, about two-thirds of the distance to Hamath in northern Syria. He also gave Mariam, his sister, in marriage to Archelaus, the son of Palkius, to whom she had formerly been betrothed by Agrippa, her father, from which marriage was derived a daughter whose name was Bernice. But for the marriage of Drusilla with Azizus, this is the Drusilla here in Acts. It was in no long time afterward dissolved upon the following occasion when Felix was procurator of Judea. He saw this Drusilla and fell in love with her, for she did exceed, she did indeed exceed all other women in beauty. And he sent to her a person whose name was Simon, one of his friends. A Judean he was, and by birth a Cypriot, and one who pretended to be a magician. Now, it's very tempting to identify this Simon with that Simon Magus of Acts chapter 8. And endeavored to persuade her to forsake her present husband and marry him and promised that if she, she would not refuse him, he would make her a happy woman. Accordingly, she acted ill And because she was desirous to avoid her sister Bernice's envy, for she was very ill-treated by her on account of her beauty, and was prevailed upon to transgress the laws of her forefathers, and, and I have to interject that she was an Edomite pretending to the religion of the Judeans to forsake the law of her forefathers, and to marry Felix. And when he had had a son by her, he named him Agrippa. But after what manner that young man with his wife perished at the conflagration of the mountain Vesuvius in the days of Titus Caesar shall be related hereafter. Now, Drusilla was also said to have died in the explosion of Mount Vesuvius. And we see that the children that, well, the the son that Felix had with her also died there. Line 145. But as for Bernice, she lived a widow a long while after the death of Herod, meaning Herod Antipas, the king of Chalcis, and the brother of Herod Agrippa I, who was both her husband and her uncle. But when the report went that she had sexual intercourse with her brother, meaning Agrippa Jr., Herod Agrippa II, she persuaded Palerno, who was the king of Caligia, to be circumcised
0: and to marry her,
1: as supposing that by this means she should prove those calumnies upon her to be false. And Palerno was prevailed upon, and that chiefly on account of her riches. Yet did not this matrimony endure long, but Bernice left Palerno, and, as was said, with impure intention. So he forsook at once this matrimony and the Judean religion. Now, it must be said that Flavius Josephus, who wrote this, had a personal relationship with Herod Agrippa II. They were good friends, and therefore, he knew much of the family history in this manner. It is also evident from many of these passages the extent to which the Edomite usurpers in Judea had intermarried with the noble families, most of them Greeks, of the surrounding nations at that time. The people whom Paul had to face here, Felix and Drusilla, And later on, Agrippa II and Berenice, Agrippa II and Berenice are are consorts and brother and sister, and, and it was rumored that they were sleeping together. Josephus must have known that. He knew them personally. The people Paul had to face here were a collection of wanton adulterers, cradle robbers and incestuous Jewish perverts. In reality, only Felix was actually of noble birth, but he was nevertheless a very corrupt man who even went so far as to pilfer a teenage bride from her first husband. It is only by the hand of Yahweh God that Paul could have Ever made it to Rome verse 25 and upon his arguing concerning righteousness now this is Paul when he was privately called to discuss Christianity in front of Felix and Drusilla which we read in verse 24 and upon his arguing concerning righteousness and self-control or temperance, and the coming judgment, Felix, becoming fearful, responded, you have to go now, but taking time, or at a convenient time, as the Codex Valianus has, I shall call you back. So Felix, with his wife Drusilla, had called upon Paul and asked to hear about the Christian faith, Understanding Felix's character as it is described by Josephus and by Tacitus, it is little wonder that Felix became fearful and probably very uncomfortable hearing the things Paul had to say. Verse 26. At the same time, also hoping that money would be given to him, By Paul, on which account, also sending for him, more often he conversed with him. Now, after those words for by Paul, the majority text interpolates the phrase that he may release him. That surely seems to be the intention. In accord with the testimonies concerning Felix's character, which were recorded, by both Josephus and Tacitus. We see here that Felix also sought bribes. Yet money was one thing that Paul could not offer him. Verse 27. Then upon the completion of two years, Porcius Festus, I have to make fun of that name, Porcius Festus. Porcius really does come from the Latin word for pig and festus really does come from the word from which we get our word festival from from the word which meant joyous in Latin. Porcius festus could actually mean joyous pig. Then upon the completion of two years, Porcius Festus received the succession from Felix, and desiring to bestow a favor upon the Judeans, Felix left Paul bound. Luke never describes how or why Festus replaced Felix, which is demonstrative of just how abbreviated a manner the accounts and acts are written. From Josephus, Wars of the Judeans, book two, from line 266, there was also another disturbance at Caesarea. Those Judeans who were mixed with the Syrians that lived there, raising a tumult against them. The Judeans pretended that the city was theirs, and that he who built it was a Judean, meaning King Herod. The Syrians confessed also that its builder was a Judean, Herod the, the Edomite, Herod the Great. Supposed to, he, he built Caesarea, probably by taxing the Israelites. The Syrians confessed also that its builder was a Judean, but they still said, however, that the city was a Greek city, for that he who set up statues and temples in it could not design it for Judeans. In other words, when Herod built Caesarea, it was filled with pagan idols. On which account both parties had a contest with one another, and this contest increased so much that at last it came to arms. And the bolder sort of them marched out to fight. For <clears throat> the elders of the Judeans were not able to put a stop to their own people that were disposed to be tumultuous. And the Greeks thought it a shame for them to be overcome by the Judeans. Now these Judeans exceeded the others in riches and strength of body, but the Greek side had the advantage of assistance from the soldiers, for the greatest part of the Roman garrison was raised out of Syria, and being thus related to the Syrian part, they were ready to assist it. However, the governors of the city were concerned to keep all quiet, And whenever they caught those who were most for the fighting on either side, they punished them with stripes and bonds. Yet did not the sufferings of those who were caught frighten the remainder or make them desist, but they were still more and more exasperated and deeper engaged in the sedition. And when Felix came once into the marketplace and commanded the Judeans, when they had beaten the Syrians to go their ways, and threatened them if they would not, and they would not obey him, he sent his soldiers out upon them and slew a great many of them. Upon which it happened that what they had was plundered. And as the sedition still continued, He chose out the most eminent men on both sides as ambassadors to Nero to argue about their various privileges. So there we see that Felix had destroyed a great many of the Judeans in in this dispute, in their dispute with the Syrians that would come back to bite him. Paul must have witnessed all these events. And all these events also must have distracted Felix from handling what would be more insignificant insignificant matters, which would include the matter of Paul. From Flavius Josephus, Antiquities, Book 20, from line 182, now when... Porcius Festus was sent as successor to Felix by Nero. The principal of the Judean inhabitants of Caesarea went up to Rome to accuse Felix, and he had certainly been punished unless Nero had yielded to the importune solicitations of his brother Pallas who was at that time had in the greatest honor by him. Now, because Felix sent ambassadors to Rome to settle this dispute, his own actions came to light, and he himself was recalled to answer. We have already seen earlier that Felix's brother Pallas was a very influential man in Rome, and here Josephus certainly seems
0: chagrined that Felix was never punished. There are three rather certain historical
1: events which allow us to determine the chronology of much of the book of Acts. The first is the death of Herod Agrippa I, in 44 AD, by which we made to determine the timing of the events of Acts chapter 12 and the murder of James, the son of Zebedee. The second is the discovery of the Gallio inscription, recording a letter from Claudius Caesar to Gallio, which was discovered at Delphi, which dates the proconsulship of Gallio in Acahia, and by which we can then determine the date of Paul's trial there
0: as having occurred
1: in 51 AD, and by which we can also determine, roughly, the timing of the Edict of Claudius, which is also mentioned in that chapter, when he expelled the Judeans from Rome. The third is the end of the term of Felix as procurator of Judea, which occurred when he was recalled to Rome in 59 AD. When Festus assumed his position, from this we know that Paul was almost certainly arrested in 57 AD. These three events, along with some of Paul's own statements, such as those found in Galatians chapters 1 and 2, help us arrive at a fairly
0: conclusive chronology of the events described the book of Acts.
1: That's why when I say that Paul was arrested, and I've said it many times these past few weeks, (laughs) that Paul was arrested in 57 AD, that's how I can be so confident. If all of these chronologies are off a year, it really doesn't matter. We need to use some sort of ruler to, to measure and What they do show, without a doubt,
0: is that the book of Acts is certainly a historical book. That ends my presentation of Acts
1: chapter 24. Tomorrow, Pragmatic Genesis, part 11, Yahweh willing, (coughs) I'm sorry, I have a bad throat tonight the call of Abraham, (laughs) and the discussion of Jacob and Esau.
0: Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.